Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're speaking with Andrew Osis, the co-CEO of Magnetic North Acquisitions Corp. What's interesting about Andrew is he's someone who's connected a corporate finance career to company building. And this leads to a really interesting and really informational interview we have. From analyst roles to portfolio management and investment banking, Andrew's evaluated countless deals, managed capital, and been through billions of dollars in transactions. That experience brings him to the current position of Magnetic North, a publicly traded private equity investment firm. I asked Andrew to be on because navigating the public markets is a difficult undertaking, especially for first-time public CEOs and CFOs. As Andrew puts it, it's like some companies wake up on Monday morning, listed and trading, and don't know what to do. Now, back in the day, companies didn't need a super smart capital market strategy. They didn't really need to deal with shareholders as much as they do now. It was just easier. Unfortunately, that's changed both from a governance standpoint and an investor relations and investor marketing standpoint. We also discuss a difficult time early in Andrew's career where he experienced the demise of a public company he was leading. As Andrew puts it, that experience gave him a PhD in management science. And there's a ton of value that we can take from that and take from his experiences. My goal with this interview is for CEOs and CFOs to hear the perspectives of a career capital markets professional, because there's no way to go through 25 years plus unscathed. And from Andrew's experience, we can hopefully make better decisions. So enjoy this episode and please share it out if you find it beneficial. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services. They've been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. Now I speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia, and I encourage you to reach out to them anytime. You can find their contact information in the show notes. On the line, I have Andrew Osis of Magnetic North. Thank you for your time. It's really nice to have you here, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what I like to do with our introductions is, is hand it over to yourself to share a bit about your background. And from the research I've done and from getting to know you leading up to this interview, I think it's definitely fitting for our audience. So if I may, I'll hand it over to you, and we can hear more about your capital markets career and everything you've done. Sure. I guess I've been in capital markets in a lot of different ways since 93, 94. Got out of the U of C with a commerce degree and thought I was pretty smart. Managed to get a job with what was certainly at that time the preeminent oil and gas investment bank in Canada, Peters and Company. And I spent a few years in the investment business in a formal way was a research analyst, a portfolio manager, and then an investment banker. Finished up my sort of formal investment banking career with RBC Dominion Securities. Learned a tremendous amount from my time inside the business. Did, you know, several billion in transactions, both direct and then as member of teams, but learned just a tremendous amount. And you can't help but learn when you're exposed to really smart people and who work really bloody hard 100 hours a week, you're going to learn some things. And then leaving the investment business, really that started my pathway to what I'm doing now. Worked as a freelance investment banker, merchant banker, turnaround specialist for want of a better term. You know, had worked on a handful of companies that were fundamentally good companies in terms of the product or service, the management team was woefully inadequate just from 
a skill and experience perspective, you know, not a lack of intention or trying, but you know, just missing those skills. And that sort of finalized the thinking that I have today on both the nature of the Canadian capital markets, but also the opportunity that Magnetic North has in front of it to work with those kinds of companies that they maybe have a great product or a great service, but missing members of the team is no different than playing hockey and not having a goalie or not having a defenseman or not having that star forward that you can uh, rely on. If you pass the puck to the left wing and there's no left winger there, it's a loss. That's really the nature of what we do at Magnetic North now. You know, we find teams that have aspects of a business plan but aren't fully formed or aren't fully grown and through that awkward adolescent stage and haven't found success yet. And so we, we invest, generally get into a control position or at the very least a strong influencing position and really bring those things to bear that are hard-fought lessons over a 25-year career of being an investment banker, portfolio manager, CEO, CFO, director, lots of different chairs and lots of different experience. I think just to expand on this, Magnetic North is listed on the TSX venture as MNC. In essence, you're a publicly listed private equity firm that you're taking that some 20 years of capital markets experience and actually entrepreneurial experience, because I'd love to touch on some of your in Mm -hmm. the trenches moments. You and your team are taking that to helping these companies that, as you mentioned, perhaps lack the skills or lack the certain team members needed to make those wins. Can we touch on some of those skills? Where do you see most companies falling down? And where are you able to step into? And the reason why I'm actually very interested in that is because investment bankers play such an important role in raising the capital and helping companies grow. But when they lack the skills to actually put that capital in play or even capture that capital, I mean, there's so many aspects there that I think you've seen, and I'd love to hear your input on them. Lots of stuff right in there to talk about that could be a a novel in and of itself. In general... Canadian companies, particularly ones that list on the TSXV or TRI, there's key things that they typically lack. And number one is capital markets understanding. There's very few CFOs that are in the Canadian marketplace that have those lessons learned, have those skills, have that club in their bag, however you want to put it. They have the technical skills, they have the willpower and fortitude to assume the role, but they don't have that nuanced understanding of exactly how capital markets works. And and you see it time and time again, where the C-suite in smaller companies lacks that understanding. The other piece that I would say is typically woefully inadequate is that commercialization understanding. And that's not just one role, that is marketing, sales, operations, logistics, it's all of those things. And while there are individuals who bring certain aspects of that and they're world-class, as a team, most companies are lacking both of those skills. And it's partly the nature of Canada being, you know, largely a resource economy, not a value-add economy, typically. And it's also that we have this great big vortex to the south of us that draws great people in as quickly as possible for higher dollars or better compensation or you know what what have you and so we tend to lose those bodies very quickly when they demonstrate any skill those are the two key things you know digging into investment bankers and you know I'm somewhat biased having been on both sides of the table having been an investment banker for a number of years and and having been the guy negotiating with them on the other side of the table. I would say investment bankers used to be that trusted advisor, that wise person who could provide perspective to a board or the C-suite. And the way the market has changed, in some ways for the better, electronic trading and discount brokerage and YouTube showing everybody how to do things, you know, everyone feels like they can jump in and they can form 
their own opinions and, you know, they don't need experts. And so it's really degraded the capabilities of the capital markets on that brokerage side, both because the money isn't there. Most brokerage firms struggle with research and and sales and trading as a profit center. And as a result, you see sort of all of the capabilities aren't quite as sharp as they maybe once were, or they're just reflecting the realities of the world today. Investment bankers, generally speaking, remain the gateway to accessing a firm's ability to raise capital. They're not the same kind of advisor that they used to be. And the evidence for that really is in the formation of these boutique investment banks where they don't do sales and trading, they just provide that advice. And those tend to attract the most skilled guys. And you have a real lack of the investment bankers being that true gateway. They're just not to be too insulting, but they end up being a wholesale salesman, you know, delivering a firm's product mm. rather than delivering best in class advice. And again, that's a generalization, but that's where that side of the business has gone. And at various times, you have investment banks spitting out companies that just shouldn't be public because they don't have fully formed team or you know, they don't have the skills or the business plan isn't really solidly defined such that it can withstand being public. I think you could argue that there's some degree of the public venture capital world, which we do have, which is a unique aspect of the Canadian markets. In essence, yes, you are going to be spinning out companies that aren't fully ready to be public. Mm -hmm. And I think that with that public venture capital route, I mean, really that grew from our financing of resource opportunities, prospecting and, and so forth. But if we were to take that back, where do management teams fall short when it comes to the capital market? I can think of a company right now that I know of where they all of a sudden became public and it's almost as though they didn't know what was going to happen when they were going to be? Yeah, they woke up on Monday morning and they're listed and, and trading and they have no idea what to do. There's several layers to that. Number one, the junior exchanges came out of the resource business. The Alberta Stock Exchange, the Vancouver Stock Exchange, which really formed the basis of the TSXB today, they were dominated by mining and oil and gas. And those were spaces that even today, in some ways, for the smaller end, you know, they didn't really need to be smart on capital markets. When I started in 94, there was Five Alive. If you had oil and gas in your name and you had a pulse, you could raise $5 billion. And literally without any other qualifications, then you had an engineer, a geologist, and a CFO. Then you just went about drilling wells. So you didn't really have to engage in capital markets. You didn't really have to make use of capital markets other than you just went to your friendly neighborhood investment banker for another bag of cash. And that's oversimplifying it, but it almost felt that way. Companies just did not need to be super smart on how to deal with shareholders, how to raise money the right way or the wrong way, and be sophisticated about their capital markets experience just kind of happened to them. Mm -hmm. And that's continued in this country. We haven't really developed that private risk market with angel investors and venture cap. There's some, but that doesn't qualify as the right amount or even close to enough. And those investors aren't expert necessarily at the capital markets either because they came out of mining and oil and gas and other things where they didn't really need to be smart on capital markets. So yeah, you've got some successful people investing in some companies, but that doesn't mean that they really truly understand how they got there. It's a market that was a natural progression, but it was a flawed growth. And so you didn't really build that expertise. I think we're seeing some of that happen now, but we're far behind, right? So what are those skills? For somebody who's got a small cap or what is in Canada, you know, they're the equivalent of a micro or a nano cap company, you know, sub $50 million Mm -hmm. market cap. What is a sophisticated capital markets approach? Well, number one, you got to ask yourself if you can deal with the regulatory side of things. And that's not just hiring an auditor or a lawyer. All of that's really incumbent upon 
the board and the management team because they own it at the end of the day. You need to be able to effectively and efficiently deal with the regulatory side of things. And the Canadian capital markets are unique, to put it in a polite way. You have an exchange that acts as a regulator. That's very unique amongst developed nations and even lots of undeveloped nations. You typically have a central securities regulator that provides a standard that you follow, like in the United States with the SEC. We have basically 10 models. And while they talk to each other and do coordinate to a degree, they don't see eye to eye on lots of issues. And so you have to comply with multiple provinces and the TSX. It leads to a very complicated regulatory environment that, you know, really no one person can provide the level of expertise and transparency that you need to engage. And so by definition, that becomes expensive. On top of that, it's then dealing with what is somewhat unbalanced system because you now have lots of institutions that dabble in small cap. They don't really professionally pursue small cap. There's a few small cap managers, but not as it once was. And I'm not saying that the history was better. It just there were more of them. And now it's largely large cap institutions that look further afield for their returns and investments. And so you have the TSXV being underserved by institutional money. You know what? When you say that, I can think of Steve Palmer and Bruce Campbell. Those are probably the only I can think of in Canada right now. Those are two of the names. There might be three or four more that I'd add to the list that are active and really understand the nature of small cap in Canada, the risk market in Canada. So, okay, you can count them on one hand. You know, that's not a marketplace. You know, you've got five guys who all basically know each other and I'm sure watch one another, but it doesn't provide the depth you need. Now you see family offices and high net worth retail brokers filling lots of that void. Even those, the bank owned dealers really prohibit retail brokers from participating in things that aren't their product. And so you've got this cutoff of capital pursuing those marketplaces from the bank owned dealers. You know, you have the institutions who've moved up market. And so you don't really have a deep risk market in the Canadian landscape. And the best technology has been mining and oil and gas sort of technology for investing. It's looking at things that don't really need to be smart on commercialization, right? You put your oil in a pipe, you put your gas in a pipe, you deliver gold bars or copper or what have you to market, and it gets sucked up by the world market. So you don't really have to understand a customer or how to engage in the market, generally speaking. And if that's and has been at times almost half of our marketplace from a capital markets perspective, okay, well, what chance do you have of really developing those other skills? I would say that you're not overly bullish on the Canadian markets. It's a very difficult place to be. But you've also chosen to be public again with Magnetic North. You're working in that environment on a daily basis, not in resources. Why that? And what are you aiming to do differently there? Well, you know, now that you say that out loud, I sort of question my own sanity. (laughs) I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm kidding. (laughs) No, no. Well, and don't get me wrong. It's not that I'm not bullish on the Canadian economy. It's not that I'm not bullish on the Canadian capability of its participants in capital markets. And it's not even that I'm not bullish on the the Canadian capital market per se. We have some structural problems. And as Canadians, we seem to almost thrive on that, where we make things very difficult on ourselves. You know, we just continue to bang our head on the wall until we're successful. Having traveled many places, having worked in about 10 or 11 countries, having had a worldwide perspective, certainly not exhaustive, but enough to provide some comparison and contrast. The capabilities of the people in the Canadian capital markets on both sides of the table, you know, being the money management side and the issuer side, the company side, they're incredibly bright, incredibly hardworking, incredibly innovative people. And it's why we've had 
the success we've had through history as an economy, as a capital markets, as an innovator. We have exceptionally bright people here. We just put these challenges in our way that you got to shake your head. Having said that, so, you know, why did we elect to jump into what is in some ways a flawed marketplace? Well, for a bunch of reasons. Number one, we know how to navigate it, right? Like if you know how to deal with the alligators that you're going to encounter, well, then it's not really a risk, is it? And if you know how to turn some of those things to your advantage, or at the very least, neuter some of the disadvantages that exist, then you can effectively swim in those waters and be successful. And we also wanted to have a private equity firm that could transact with its paper. One of the key missing pieces that I've seen in that merchant banking private equity space is the ability to do just that. And you've seen companies like Onyx and Mosaic and Founders Advantage be relatively successful in public markets. You know, Onyx, obviously very successful, but they... Sorry, for reference, it comps to Magnetic North? Well, not really. You know, they're much larger companies and they're going after different targets. Are they in the private equity space? Yeah. You know, Onyx Corporation has been in that space now for decades. It's a multi-billion dollar success story that operates internationally. You know, Mosaic and Founders Advantage are smaller and have had less success, but they grew in the public markets as private equity companies. And at times they've made use of their currency to access opportunities. Both, I think, have seen better days. You know, they still have large operations and investments and are working towards better times, I think, but they're targeting being in that public space to bring those private entities to life, right? And there's hundreds of companies in the public space on the TSXV for sure, now on the CSE, that need to be consumed by the marketplace, right? Either through a private equity firm or through merger or acquisition to put those companies into better hands, as it Mm -hmm. were. And so all of that worked all together really leads you to, okay, If you want to access capital in this marketplace, you have to be public. If you want to use your currency as part of your tools in your tool belt, you have to be public. And myself and my partners are all very comfortable in public capital markets. And so that's not really a risk for us. It's a challenge each and every day, but we know how to manage that and bring the best forward in that space. I'd like to take a quick moment to say thanks to Olympia Trust Company for supporting this podcast. They've been supporting both public and private companies in Western Canada for well over 20 years, and they take a lot of pride in their personalized customer service. Now back to the show. We've diverted off the path a bit, but I do want to bring it back to Magnetic North because I'm curious about some of the investments that you do have. Well, what I think is just a fascinating uptick in your share price as of late. And I mean, this isn't an investment show per se, but I'm curious sure, sure. if there's one of your portfolio companies saw some great traction. I'm curious about the other investments that you have under that portfolio and how that all works together. You know, we pursue opportunities that, like I said early on in this conversation, you know, they're lacking those skills. They have a great product or a great service but they're lacking capital markets understanding, either public or private. They need a few more dimensions to the team, be it logistics or financial or strategy, operations, what have you. We actively look for those great products that have been overlooked by the capital markets or aren't able to raise capital because they're not a fully formed team or they don't really know where to start on that, right? Two of the companies that we're talking about actively these days, one being Prevacare and the other one being CXDL, you know, they have a little bit of timeliness and so therefore wind at their back. You know, Prevacare is a unique disinfectant company that provides something called residual kill. So you can wipe a surface, you know, the surface is clean, but it then stays clean for 24 to 48 hours. Hmm. It will kill any virus or bacteria that you're concerned about. And that's unique in the world. And we're not aware of another product that deals with viruses in that way. 
and obviously with COVID-19, it, it's it's a very timely thing. So we've signed some large deals and we've got some more to come that will deliver that disinfectant to consumers and hospitals and other medical services companies, as well as food services and food processing. It's something we've been working on for four and a half years, I think, almost five. You know, it's not like we found this last Tuesday and kind of got lucky. It, we've been working on this for some time. Yeah, classic um, overnight but, success that took five years. Yeah, well, yeah, that took five years. And, you know, while it's accelerated things, the success was going to happen this year, irrespective of COVID, but it put a very fine point and really accelerated things in that space. CXTL is a very unique opportunity that it has a proprietary way of dealing with plastics and any and all plastics. You can put any plastic you want into this process and it fully recycles it without any environmentally damaging residue. You typically have, through other processes, a flag or residue that is worse than anything you put in the front end of the process. And you generally get pretty crappy products out of it. But, you know, this process is highly unique and could literally take the entire world's plastic problem and solve it in a very environmentally friendly and very economic and profitable way. We're looking at reclaiming old landfills. We're looking at removing the need for landfills. We're looking at, you know, when you remove plastics from water or the ocean, there's all kinds of issues with trying to deal with those plastics we can recycle those with no trouble. We're looking very hard at the future of that company solving the plastic problem that the world has. How exciting is that? Both companies. My business partner, Kevin Spall, he and our co-CEOs of Magnetic North, we sort of look at each other on a regular basis and shake our heads because we've managed to uncover some companies that can literally change the world in some very positive ways and they need our help to get there. It's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of work, but the rewards are compelling to say the least. I see that you're stepping in and becoming partners to these companies and also helping them. Well, I I would imagine access capital and access opportunities, leaning on your experience there. I got two questions I'm going to bob and weave here. One is, are you actively reviewing deals? Do you have a process where you're just looking at deals coming by your, your desk every day? Yeah, both because of 25 year career of being involved in some interesting companies and interesting spaces, you sort of build a reputation and a network for looking at crazy stuff. And so you see lots of interesting deals. We get deals put in front of us just about every day. Kevin and I are both very good at reviewing those and sort of triaging the opportunity and determining, is this a magnetic deal or not? When a deal comes across your desk, which ones are outstanding? And almost, you know, regardless of the merit of the deal when you do your due diligence, but which ones stand out that enable the entrepreneur to actually get time with you? Well, what are the characteristics of those deals? We look for things that have a real, we call it high torque, meaning that they've got a high potential growth rate on the revenue side. We're kind of not interested in things that can go from a million to two million and then they grow at 10% for the next 20 years. Don't get me wrong, that's a good business, but it's not something that we would spend time on because that company that goes from one to two million the work is the same as the company that goes from one to a hundred million. So, you know, a little more complex and you need a few more bodies, but it's the same work. And so for us and our shareholders, we really look for those things that have that high torque capability. We also aren't really interested in things that are bounded by geography, right? That it's a truck drive distance that's your customer base that's less interesting because it has that lower torque as a result too, right? And so we look for global opportunities with a North American basis. The entire team has worked in multiple countries. You know, I think at last count, there were sort of 35 or 40 countries that we've actively worked in as a team. And so we really try to find those global opportunities that will have a strong basis here in North America. And so those are kind of the first two filters that we look for. I mean, that's criteria, but what about the ones that emotionally got you? 
that you just looked and you go, damn it, that's a good pitch. I need to know um, more. If you asked that question of, of anybody that's been on your podcast, I think they'd agree having emotions involved is a path to destruction. I'll say this, I'm jaded because of my time in capital markets. You can fall in love with a team. You can fall in love with an idea. You can fall in love with the way somebody presented. That doesn't make it a good opportunity. I find that a good opportunity is a good opportunity, whether you fall in love with it or not. And you kind of have to remove your emotion from it. If you see a great product, but it's a crappy management team that you know, you just can't get behind. Does that change the nature of the opportunity for that product? Well, it really doesn't. And so you have to kind of see past that emotion both ways, whether you fall in love or you hate. And I'm using the extremes on that. You know, it's yeah. never it's never that. You have to look past that because if you fall in love with a management team and they're working on the wrong product, is that a good investment? I fundamentally believe you got to find the right team and when you find that right team, you got to put them in line with the right opportunity. But just because you've fallen in love with a CEO or a CFO or a board or what have you, that doesn't make it a great opportunity. I agree with that. I guess where we're going is one of the previous guests, Kyle Dunn, made a point that when you're going for capital, that initial meeting is you're not competing for legitimacy with the investor, you're competing mm -hmm. for more time. My view is when you come in and you're pitching and you have an emotionally engaging pitch where somebody looks and goes, oh, geez, I got to learn more. It's just not facts. Yep. Yep. That's what yep. captivates the investor and leads to that next meeting where you can get into the logic of the deal, where you can start talking objectively about what it means to be an investor versus just going with emotion. And that's where I could imagine you could separate yourself out. But and that's where I was going, is which ones mm -hmm. stood out that were not competing for legitimacy, but were competing for time, which caught your attention? And, and, yeah, or maybe and more aspects of those that did. It's a case of, certainly, I can't speak for everybody, but from a magnetic perspective, we try to get to the heart of the matter on what is the product or service that that company is putting forward. And we've got enough experience and scar tissue to know what's hard and what's easy. We're certainly not perfect, but we get attracted to those things where you know, a company comes in and presents a product or service and that will get our attention, right? The fancy PowerPoints or the resumes of the team involved are in some respects almost an afterthought. And we definitely dig into the management team because that's where the value is. That's where the value gets created. The product or the service isn't the end-all be-all, but it's the hook for us to get involved. You know, I saw a company not long ago where the fellow has come up with a really innovative and unique way of dealing with styrofoam. It's a dehydration and compression technology that he can take a mountain of styrofoam and put it into basically a block that is four by four by four. And so interesting concept, really interesting technology. The guy who's running it, he's your hardworking average kind of Joe who figured this out on his own and has worked really hard to develop a business. And, you know, if you looked at the financials, you'd think it was a good opportunity. The problem is, is that we're aware of other technologies that recycle styrofoam in much better ways. And so is that a great opportunity or not? Well, the network is great. His compression technology is great. Would we invest in that business as it is? Well, no, because we're aware of other things. But that got our attention being that this is a really interesting product or technology. It has no management team to speak of because it's one guy mm. and he drives a truck and he's got some staff and you know, he's built up relationships and doing a great job with really no background or experience in management at all. But is that a compelling investment? Well, when you pull back the layers and you look at other things, no, you know, it's not. But it got our attention because it's in a space that we really like looking being recycling and solving those problems in a compelling way. So sometimes we can look at a technology and still come to a conclusion that, yeah, that's just not the right implementation. But it, it's those sorts of things where 
they've got a unique product or service that gets our attention. And we like it even better if the management team isn't fully functional, because Mm. then we can really change the value. Something that I want to drive into, can we go back to your early experience with a company called Point? The reason why I bring that up is because that was quite a remarkable or a notable Canadian success story. You were getting a lot of traction, a lot of things were going well, but then things fell apart. Can you paint the picture of what it was and what happened? And I think most importantly is what was the learning experiences you took for that? That was an opportunity that I sort of fell into. I met a fellow while I was at RBC Dominion Securities working in investment banking. You know, he showed up through a relationship that he had inside the bank at Dominion Securities presenting an interesting idea. And, you know, it didn't suit RBC. It didn't suit the bank. It didn't sort of suit that institution really at all. But a compelling individual very innovative. Your typical inventor comes up with a new idea every 15 minutes, just a ball of energy. And so a few years after leaving the investment business, you know, reconnected with him and he basically presented the idea of what was local search long before it was even an idea. You know, local search was your yellow pages. Even that, the implementation on the web was pretty brutally bad. It was more subject search than local search. John Lowe was the inventor of Point. He came up with the idea of what do you need and where do you need it and connected up all the pieces in a fairly rudimentary way at that time, because that was really 2002, and tried to bring that to life. Fast forward to we go public. I'm now the CEO of the corporation. And, you know, we made it through one of the worst financial markets in history being the 2008 crash and couldn't finance, couldn't raise money in the traditional sense. Only as a result of my connections and the board's connections, do we keep the thing alive? We refocused the business plan to really hone in on local search and local search applications. And so it was well ahead of its time, both in concept and in technology. We were doing things that are commonplace today and you don't even think about. At that time, they were exceptionally hard to do and really unlocked people's thinking on how they could best use their smart device. We started growing really by word of mouth. It was allowing people to share the application. We said, okay, if you like Point, share it with a friend. And they could email a link or text a link to somebody else and they could download the application and it grew all by its lonesome. We ultimately were operating in 10 countries in eight languages, you know, amalgamating data from hundreds of sources and really providing that local search solution that nobody else at that point in time had really provided. You know, there were a few competitors. The limitations, well, we were public. We were public in Canada and we were a microcap public in Canada. And that provided just all kinds of obstacles to being successful. We kind of have a tech market in Canada. We've done very well in the tech space. And again, the people in Canada, you know, the engineers, the innovators are world-class, but we don't have that commercialization technology, that capability on a world-class basis. And certainly our capital markets doesn't understand or at that time didn't really understand the value of a user over the value of revenue, cash flow, and earnings. And we were a user model. You know, we were building users. We really couldn't build revenue. And if you looked south of the border at things that we were competing with, we'd raise $10 million, they'd raise $100 million. You know, they kind of had $10 to every one of ours. But we had the same number of users, which was really the remarkable thing. You know, which company was more successful? Well, we would acquire a user for one-tenth or one-fifteenth what they would acquire a user for. And we did it from Calgary with world-class technical people, but couldn't cross the bridge on truly global success, particularly on the revenue side. You know, the advertising market just wasn't there yet. And we captured the attention of a technology investor out of California, and he really took control of the company and was trying to apply some American thinking to what was fundamentally a Canadian company in a Canadian marketplace bound by Canadian rules. 
And so the other limitation was we should have been public in the United States or private in the United States at the very least. The Canadian lens for the capital markets at that time wasn't going to provide for the things that we needed. The kind of growth capital and that growth understanding. Yeah, yeah, both of those and, and other aspects. And, you know, a train wreck is never as a result of one thing. Accidents are always as a result of multiple things going wrong, and you kind of can't break out of that cycle. And that's exactly what happened at Point. We had a major shareholder who wanted to take the company in certain directions that it really shouldn't go. You had a team that couldn't deliver the commercialization and user success and revenue success that we needed. You had a capital markets that wasn't supporting small tech, you know, in 2012. We'd signed a deal in China and China had become a bad word in Canadian capital markets that year. What was it, Sinopex that triggered that? Sinoforest had Uh, had conducted a fraud, essentially, claiming that they had millions of acres of land, which they didn't, and the RCMP showed up at their front door, as I understand it. And so we announced a Chinese joint venture not long after that, and it was like crickets. We couldn't find our way in any way. And ultimately, that led to the death of the company. We just couldn't keep up with the competitors that were out there that had 10 times the number of bullets that we had, you know, had much larger teams and, and had a commercialization expertise that we didn't have. And Surely that couldn't have been easy on you. I joke that it was a PhD in management science that I got in a, a two-year time frame. What did you take from that that you perhaps even apply every day now, aside from the scar tissue? It's many things. I was talking about this with my kids the other day that I still sort of have things that I process from that time in terms of learnings. You know, sometimes you're exposed to the lesson, but you don't necessarily learn it till later. It's ongoing and I still learn things from that, both in the composition of the team, the foundational things that you build on any opportunity, but you kind of have to be aware of what they could be in the future, right? And how they may limit your growth in future i.e., uh, you know, a small user-based tech company in Canada. You want to talk about a square peg and a round hole. It's making sure that you're always evaluating those foundational assumptions and characteristics that you're aligned with the business and you're setting up access to the things you need instead of putting up barriers to the things you need. And those were the big lessons. There's a million and one little ones that shape your thinking in small ways each and every day. But fundamentally, it comes back to those foundational things that you need for success. If you don't have those or you're at at cross purposes to what you need, you just make it much more difficult on yourself and the company. You know, it all comes back to the people involved. That's where success and failure lies. It's the bodies involved. Risk is a malleable, mutable, changeable thing, depending on who's in the room. If you're by yourself and you have a heart condition, you probably die. If you're in the room with one of the foremost cardiac specialists, well, you probably won't. And so that's a very sharp way of describing risk, but it's no different in business. I was going to say, almost every early stage company has a heart condition. Oh, yeah. And sometimes they do it to themselves. It depends on who's in the room. It depends who's on the team. And that's not necessarily just the management or the board. That's sometimes the advisors too, right? You really have to think of risk as being something that's changeable depending on the skills that you can apply to it. You know, there are certain things you can't change. You know, there are certain things that you just have to accept and, and they may kill your business. But the question you have to ask yourself, okay, is t- accepting that risk worth the potential reward of success? And if it isn't, well, okay, then you have to reevaluate. And again, that comes back to the people involved. I, and you, I, can you change that or modify that? It really sounds straight up. We talked about a bit earlier. You've got your parameters or some of the things you look for in your deals, market size, the global base, the ability to expand globally, if you will, or really that torque, as you mentioned. Those mm-hmm. are some of the parameters you look for in a deal. But it seems that from experience and from all of years in the capital markets, it all comes down to the people. That is your go-to. And that's where you lean on that PhD 
proverbial PhD that you gained from your experience at Point? It was very clear to me, both at the time and since, that we had the right people initially to get us up and running. You know, we had the right people initially to grow to a certain size. And they went from being the right people to the exact wrong people very quickly. And if that was the only problem we had to solve for was transitioning the management team, we probably would have been successful. But we were in a capital markets that wasn't really the right capital market for the company. You know, we had a major shareholder who had some lofty ambitions that were flawed in lots of ways. We couldn't raise money and we couldn't move jurisdictions, meaning move from Canada to the United States in a quick and easy way. And so you're solving for all of those problems and any one of them can kill you. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, all of them killed us. Had we had a better team, maybe we could have got out of that. But certainly that was the key lesson. It was you've got to have the right bodies with the right skills at the right time in the right place. And that can be most of the success. It certainly isn't all of the success. And I go back to something that Warren Buffett has said time and again. He'd much rather have an A-class management team with a B-class asset base than a B-class management team with an A-class asset base Hmm. because the assets perform at the level of management. That's the lens through which the assets really are looked at through that lens of management. And so one of the key tenants that we try to bring is that A-class management team that can really deliver those assets to the world in an A-class way. I've been taking a lot of notes there. And one thing that you did point out from the point experience, excuse the pun, was you know the right people turned into the exact wrong people so quickly. And it's just such an interesting I guess, experience or dynamic that you went through there. So what an experience for you. From your experience and given the market events now and the sweeping changes really to the global economy, what are you seeing and how are you preparing for this? What are you seeing in the next 12 months? And what would you like your CEOs or potential companies to be seeing when they speak with you? I look at this, I think maybe a little differently than others. People talk about preparation. You know, this is a unusual event to say the least, I kind of don't agree that it's going to forever change things in how people conduct themselves. I think there'll be some small changes. You know, I think it definitely is going to leave an indelible mark on economies, on companies, and on people in lots of different ways. I think you're going to have a two-year period where things are odd, you know, weird, different, challenging And I'm not sure you can necessarily prepare for that. You can be aware of it for sure, but I find at least my crystal ball works about as well as everybody else's. It's, you know, it's pretty smoky and I can't really tell the future. I think you just kind of have to put one foot in front of the other and solve problems as they occur. That's really the hallmark of any great management team. You can have a heads up view of where the risks are in your business, where the problems might be. But this kind of thing is so outside the realm of the normal that you kind of just have to problem solve on a daily basis. And you have to be flexible because you can be a microbrewery and then, you know, in order to really survive, you have to make hand sanitizer, for example. Hmm. And so there's lots and lots of things there that are areas where CEOs need to be flexible you know, if they can't be prepared. And these sorts of events, you know, in short term, reveal character, they don't necessarily build it. Over the longer term, that's where you have character building, right? Mm. Where you, you know, you employ those lessons that you learn and the experiences you go through, that builds character longer term. You know, I would say to you that this event is probably going to build a lot of learnings for a lot of management teams, and they'll look at the world in different ways risk will be perceived in a more global sense than just my block or just my town, right? Because these sorts of things can occur to the global economy and that has far-reaching effects for everybody. And so I don't know that we're smart enough yet to really know what it is we need to look for in terms of teams. But the thing we're sort of looking at is 
can a team be flexible? Can a team problem solve on that daily basis? And you know what I take can they do that in an effective way, right? When I think of a company pitching you, perhaps one of the ways you'd be looking at them six months down the road is when this all went down, how flexible were you and what did you change Mm -hmm. to adapt as an indicator of their resilience versus them just saying, oh, well, we tried to prepare. Yeah. And that's the motherhood and apple pie statement, right? Like, and everybody will say that in the postmortem that, well, we were prepared in this way, or we tried to prepare in that way, or this, that, or the other. It comes down to if you're a resilient individual, you're a resilient manager. I've always said that it's either you have too much conviction to quit or you're too stupid to quit. And it's a little bit of both. Sometimes you just don't know that you should quit, that there might be a better way. It can also be that you have the real conviction that what you're doing is the right answer. You know, it's a very narrow ledge in between those two. You can fall down on either side, right? You know, again, I think Canadians as a whole and as individuals, we have the courage of our convictions that we can navigate through difficult things and challenging problems and come out the other end. Certainly, I see that in Western Canada all the time, and I see it in Eastern Canada regularly. And we've got a long history of being that way. And so I think Canadian companies will be ideally suited for this kind of event. And really, the things that are in our way, we need to remove, but we've done them to ourselves, so should be fairly easy as long as we can recognize them, right? I think that's the stuff that will come out of this. You will see structural changes in government and in economies and global interaction, but business has to be able to roll with those punches. It has to be able to modify for the conditions that it finds itself in. And if it doesn't, it dies and gets consumed by somebody who can. That, I think, will continue to happen, and there's just going to be more of it over the next decade. Any final thoughts for the audience, and how can listeners follow your work? It's been a wide-ranging conversation. You know, it's the ramblings of a guy who sort of wandered through a career doing interesting things and working with smart and interesting people. The key thing is you got to engage if you're a management team or a participant in the capital markets, you got to engage and learn and talk and read and get yourself exposed to lots of different things because all of those lessons can be applied, right? That certainly worked at the very least for me over my career and you know seems to be working for Magnetic North over the last seven years. In terms of following me, Magnetic North is where I hang my hat and we're publicly traded on the TSXV currently and growing by the day and certainly we're looking for people to participate in what we're doing. So, you know, that's really the base to follow. It's an interesting story and I've enjoyed getting to know one of the co-CEOs behind the deal. There's a methodology within yourself that's been really interesting to hear. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Corey. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.